Established in 1881, the Prince Henry Hospital at Little Bay in Australia, originally called the Coast Hospital, was purpose-built to treat people with contagious diseases. Patients suffered from typhoid, leprosy, smallpox and other communicable diseases and died there in large numbers. Does this history mean that the site is haunted? We certainly have many stories that tell us it is. Hi, my name's Renata Daniel. And I'm Anne Rekovich. And we welcome you to this week's episode of True Hauntings. Anne and Renata have been investigating paranormal occurrences for the past 20 years. They have been at the center of various unexplained phenomena and have witnessed countless ghostly experiences. The duo now turn to high-profile cases that have attracted the eyes of the world. Between the dimensions we see and the dimensions we don't, supernatural forces are at play. Evil lurks within the shadows of our homes and in the darkest corners of our minds. It follows us like a shadow forever. This is where nightmares become reality. This is True Hauntings. Yeah. How about we get on with the story, Anne? Oh, let's get on to it. We're back in Australia today with Prince Henry Hospital, Little Bay, right near Sydney, Australia. The Trained Nurses Association has an annual nurses reunion and we used to have it in the museum before it got really, really big. This one particular time, a male colleague and I were the last people in the museum setting up for the reunion. The place settings, the knife and the fork and spoon were wrapped in a serviette and placed on the bread and butter plate on the side. I want to say that I was the only one with the key and I was the last one to lock the doors and leave. The next day... I returned at 9am to open for the last-minute things to get done. I went in and started putting the flowers on the tables when I noticed that all of the serviettes were open and the knives, forks and spoons were like soldiers on the plates. Whoever, in spirit, had come in during the night rearranged the lot They obviously didn't like the cutlery wrapped up in the serviettes and decided that they wanted it their way. After all, it was a hospital for some many years. It dealt with death. This is where the stories of the ghosts come from. A lot of the stories are based on fact. It's all about people just being open enough to acknowledge that there is a spiritual connection. A place of death is always going to produce it. Because of the history of the Coast Prince Henry Hospital, it is always a big draw card for paranormal studies. If I ever go out to Prince Henry, when I walk into the museum, the first thing I'll always say is, hello everybody, I'm here. Because I acknowledge that. There is that presence there. I know there is. So I'm proud to say... I believe. The soundscape you just read, Anne, was actually some 
first-person information that came from a lady called Lynn Smith. Yeah, Lynette. And she was a nurse within that hospital. She had a very soft spot for Prince Henry and she was one of the first people to introduce us to the site. And I remember that we were standing outside the doors and one of the things I normally do when I come to a new location is I just sort of introduce myself Mm -hmm. to the ghosties and ask permission to come in. And she came bustling out and she said, okay, now before you come in, you've all got to introduce yourself and say (laughs) hello to the ghost of Prince Henry. And I went, I've already done that. And she looked at us with such joy because she realised she'd found like-minded people. Yeah. Now, do you know I've got a weird connection to Lynette? Do you? I do. Oh, yes. yes. Do I tell this now? Do I tell it later? No. No, go ahead. Yeah. All right. So... Lynette is one of the nurses at the Prince Henry Hospital, but before she was at the Prince Henry Hospital, she was at the Sydney Women's Hospital, nursing there from around the 60s, I think 50s through to 60s, maybe early 70s. I can't remember the exact dates, but she used to look after all the unwed mothers coming in were putting their babies up for adoption. So those who are familiar with the TV series Love Child, think of that. And I was born in the Sydney Women's Hospital, and she was there when I was born. Wow. And she probably helped birth me, if not that she definitely did all my paperwork. Wow. Isn't that crazy? Isn't that insane? I just, I've got, still got goosebumps just mm. thinking of that. Wow. She met my birth mother, which I've, mm-hmm. I've never met. Mm-hmm. Does my head in. Anyway. But that also came from just a general conversation that you were having. Yes, when uh, she mentioned the Sydney yeah. Women's Hospital, I went, oh, I was born there. What year were you there? When she said, I went, oh, my God. Wow. Wow, wow. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so let me just talk. Meanwhile, about, back on to you. Yeah, let me talk a little bit about the history here of Prince Henry Hospital. So it was established in 1881. Now, before we go any further, I'd just like to interrupt you yet again because I'm so good at that. Oh, she's just slammed the papers on the table. I'm in trouble. (laughs) This place has a special little spot in our heart too, doesn't it? Uh Uh-huh. Because we run investigations there. Yes. We met a lovely lady called Frida Mm -hmm. at the Casula Powerhouse Paranormal Expo that was run by Abby. And she came over and started talking to us and said, oh, you know, I've got a a location that I'd really love for you guys to come and look at and maybe do some work for me. We just said, yeah, sure. Yeah, not a problem. Turned out it was Prince Henry Hospital. So we have been running paranormal experiences. I think it's called the Twilight Tour or something like that. We've been running that there for now, was it five, six, six years? years? Mm-hmm. And it's actually put on by Randwick Council and in association with the Nurses Museum where the nurses come in and tell all their stories. With and, great gusto. Oh, and they have like an audience of 60 to 70 people. Yeah. And then we we break them all up into smaller groups because there's only so much you can do with a a taste of paranormal investigation with 70 people. And we took them into three different areas of the the hospital wing that's left and give them a little taste of working with the paranormal equipment. And they love it. It's sold out every year. It's cheap as chips. That was a great time was had by all. But the artefacts that are left within the hospital Mm -hmm. in this museum blow my mind. They have a working iron line. They do. And it is terrifying. The noise that it makes when it's working is just, it's more. It's terrifying. Yeah. 
Yeah, and to think they had wards of them. Yes. So not just one or two. They would have 20 down one side of the ward, 20 down the other side, and probably 20 back to back in the middle. Mm-hmm. And they're all... <laughs> I hope you enjoyed that sound effect that I've gone to so much trouble to provide. But I'd like to even think about your life now being just connected to that. Mm. You're connected to a machine. Mm. Now, wasn't there a woman that actually gave birth? She got I'm pregnant. Not sure. She got pregnant. She must have been pregnant before she got in the machine because I don't think she could have got pregnant while she was in the machine. <laughs> I think the nurses might have noticed that happening. <laughs> I think they had time out of the machine, but only very small periods of time. And then mm. they had to get some back could, into the some machine. Some couldn't. Yeah. So the the iron lung was used for the epidemic of polio, poliomyelitis, I think it was. And my dad had polio. Mm-hmm. So I've got even yet another connection to mm-hmm. all of this, mm-hmm. um, the synchronicities between Prince Henry and my life and then also Q Station Manly. Yes. Yeah, I, I got a feeling that the hospital may have picked me to come over and work there because there were so many teams there that day and she she found us. So, mm-hmm. um, And many of the nurses that actually worked at... Mandy Q Station were actually trained at Prince Henry Hospital. Hospital. Yeah. There you go. Anyway, so sorry, I didn't want to really let you go too far into the history before we explained our personal connection to the site. That's true. And I I actually did find the very first ad for the first Twilight Tour at Prince Henry Hospital that you didn't do. No, it wasn't us for the very first one. it was a different team. I was very so grateful that they weren't available for the second (laughs) one because it meant she had to go looking for someone. And I know who it is too. Oh, do you? I do. And they're beautiful, beautiful people. Okay. Jen and Jeanette. Oh, right. Yes. And they are gorgeous. Okay. So I'm I'm sorry you guys missed out there, but the hospital called me, so, yeah, I had to go. That's right. (laughs) All right, well, I'll go back to the fact that it was established in 1881. (gasps) Oh, deja vu. And it was originally called the Coast Hospital because it was near the coast and as far away from the maddening crowd of the city as they possibly could put it because it was a hospital built for people with contagious diseases. Yeah, it was. And so being, first of all, near the ocean when they believed that that foul air could mm-hmm. be taken away by the beautiful sea breezes. And they did that at Quarantine Station as well, up in isolation. They put the little hospital shack right up on the top of the cliff and they had these windows, wooden slatted windows that they would open up and they said it was to allow the miasma to mm-hmm. disperse. That's right. That's Give right. Give them a chill. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't originally called Prince Henry. It was called Prince Henry Hospital after the visit of His Royal Highness Henry, Duke of Gloucester. Geez, they're good in, on names there, Coastal it, Hospital near the coast and now Prince Henry because he happened to turn up. Yes, <laughs> yes, in 1934. So, as I mentioned, it was purposely built at a considerable distance from the city of Sydney and it is a fair distance away if you think back in the 1800s. Yeah, it to where taken, the original um, yes, Sydney would have been, yeah. yeah. Because people were suffering from contagious diseases and it sat on 500 acres of sand dunes and rugged bushland which hugged the coast 
and was only a short distance away from the very famous Botany Bay, which is where the first... Singing to rely, rely <laughs> and be. The first fleet landed when Captain Cook stepped out and said, this is now mine. I take it from you all, mm-hmm. regardless of who may be here. Yeah. Oh, no one's here. Oh, no one's remember, here. Remember, <sighs> the, the, the poor Aboriginals were classified as animals. animals. Isn't it just disgusting? I'm they so ashamed of our history. <laughs> it's just awful. Right, so patients that were here were suffering from things like typhoid, leprosy, smallpox. Yeah, they had a leper colony. And other communicable diseases. And they died there in large numbers. So the leprosy colony, did they provide the tip of the week? Oh, no, it's just, I'll move on. Veterans from both world wars recuperated from their wounds and illnesses there. And if you go around the Randwick area, there are actually some beautiful old buildings that were used as temporary hospitals Mm. also for repatriation services. So it's quite interesting. And nurses tending them were famous for their dedication. So these women literally gave their life and soul to working in the hospital. And I have to say that that seems to be the case of the nurses that even worked in the latter years. Mm. They will still come back after so many years and share their stories and remember good times of working in the hospital because we, we notice that when we're there on their open days, mm-hmm. they will come back in and, and the attachment to the place is amazing. Mm-hmm. So in times past, many of its nurses and matrons dedicated their entire lives to the hospital and remembered by today's generation as stern, no-nonsense taskmasters. So nurses, I'm sure that nowadays you think it is tough being a nurse, but some of those older matrons mm. would, yeah. And I, they never married. It was just... No, no. They devoted their life to what they did. Mm-hmm. During the 19th century, smallpox was rife. Records show that ships brought the disease to Australia from countries across the globe, including England, Scotland, France, Germany, Java, China, Japan, USA, Chile, Brazil and the Philippine Islands, Singapore, Panama and the Indian ports of Colombo, Calcutta and Bombay. There you go. It That's was everywhere. And, yeah, and you you think of the Rona today and the the countries that Mm -hmm. we're blocking from coming in because of the pandemic. Yeah, it's about the same. It is. (laughs) The the synchronicities there. Mm. Maybe we just haven't learned much as humans. No. On the 25th of May, 1881, the child of a Chinese immigrant living in in Lower George Street, Sydney, was found to be suffering from smallpox. So you can imagine it didn't take long from for just one person to infect men, many and the contagion spread, particularly amongst those living in overcrowded and insanitary conditions. Oh, that's India and, right now. Yeah, and that's that's what was happening in that Sydney central yeah. area. That the Rocks area, which is now very, very famous and very historical, mm. was where many of those diseases broke out. Now, they did have some memorable matrons. There was Mrs. Mary My- Myler uh, from 1881 to 1885, Miss 
M.D. Farquharson from 1885 to 1886. They didn't last long. It was like one or two years. Then we had. Did they die? I don't know. (laughs) Miss Isabella Dixon. 1886 to 1888, Miss Helen McKay, 1888 to 1891, Miss Jean McMaster, 1891 to 1905. So that's in those early years. It is hereby notified for general information that a temporary camp provided with floored tents and other conveniences has been formed at a site between Little Bay and Long Bay, where it is proposed to receive and maintain for a time at the public cost persons presumably healthy who may desire to be removed from overcrowded houses from which persons have been taken who are infected with the smallpox with a view to the more complete disinfection of such houses and to prevent the further spread of the disease. So if someone had smallpox in the home, they take everyone out and they'd put them into this camp opposed to uh, and then disinfect the house. As opposed to, remember when we were in York in England, mm-hmm. where if someone was... Oh, yeah, the plague, they'd the, board the, them up. They'd board them up and keep them all in there until they all died. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my gosh. An ambulance corps was formed in July 1881 for the disinfection of infected premises and the removal of patients from infected houses, the making of coffins and the burying of those dead of the disease. So the members of the corps were at first housed in tents on ground belonging to the police force at Botany, but with the opening of the Coast Hospital, they were shifted to special quarters on the grounds adjacent to the hospital buildings. You'd think they'd keep them away from the Mm. sick. Okay. Mm. Now, what were you going to say about oh, the, the I matron? Found, I found the matron. Her name was Mrs. Helen McKay, and she was there from February 1888 to March 1891. Mm-hmm. She's described as a, a charming, competent Prince Alfred hospital nurse, became matron in 1888. She kept pet cockatoos, a vogue with matrons at the time. And they've got this gorgeous photo of her with her pet cockatoos all over her arms. And she's got a couple there, so I'll have to remember to post that up so you guys can see it. She's got a big, big smile on her face. She's obviously loving every minute of that. But I I just, cockatoos, okay. Okay. Mm. Let's get back to smallpox. Let's get back to smallpox. Squirrel. Smallpox. (laughs) Smallpox raged until the 19th of February, 1882. And during those nine months, 154 cases were officially notified a quarter of whom died. Of the 40 fatal cases, 30 had never been vaccinated. There was little doubt that the total number of cases exceeded 154 as notification of smallpox only became compulsory in December 1881. There may also have been some concealment by medical men as the first two doctors who notified cases were quarantined against their will for several months. Several months? Several months. Oh, they've kept them there to look after the patients. I Yes. Mm. yes. Oh, you just have to stay another week. Mm-hmm. Just, just another week. So the lady superintendent or the matron, Mrs. Mary Mailer, 
Myler, I said beforehand, and most of the nurses were drawn from the staff of Sydney Infirmary. The lady superintendent of Sydney Infirmary at the time was Miss Lucy Osborne, a capable trainee of a Miss Nightingale who Ooh. had sent her from England with five other Nightingale nurses at the request of the New South Wales government to take charge wow. of the nursing staff of that hospital. This was the start of modern nursing training and high nursing standards in Australia. Ooh. Yes, so they were actually they were called the Nightingale nurses, trained by Florence herself. Yep. So the construction of the Coast Hospital was completed, and it was built from wood and corrugated iron. It had six pavilion wards, two private pavilion wards, specially isolated pavilion wards, pavilion pavilion quarters for medical and nursing staff, and various other necessary buildings. And it had a hundred and six beds. So it had a hospital accommodation, a sanatorium for housing contacts of infected families. Oh, uh, so they didn't put them in with no, no, no. Infected. They did at Q station as well. They would have clean ground and unclean ground, and there was sort of like stages. So if you were really infected with it all, you were put up into isolation, and if you were just sick with it, they left you in the hospital district. But that was all still what they would call the unclean ground because there there was sickness there. They only had up to 62 people at any time. Mm-hmm. That's not a lot. In the area that they used for healthy ground. So once they, they took the smallpox victims out, they moved the family to this healthy ground area and they had, had only 62 people at a time, which that seems a very small amount to me. Mm. What happened with the rest of them? Q station. See, what I'm thinking is that as the ships came in, those who were sick on the ships were deposited at quarantine station. Those who got sick within the city were sent to Little Bay, mm-hmm. I'm guessing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. So the bodies of those who died in the hospital were conveyed in an open hearse to the cemetery. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> let's just let that miasma mm. uh, spread across all of the population. But I suppose it was it was a different airborne. cemetery. It was a, it was a different cemetery. It was the original cemetery, which not very much of it exists now. That's the one we haven't been to. Yeah, that really interests me. I, I we need to go back there at some stage and and check that out. Okay, yeah. I know the quarantine station Manly, they they made the mistake with the cemetery that they had like the, the hospital district up on the hill and then they had this area that was a hill that sloped down to the water and they buried people in that section there and then they suddenly realised that the bodies were decomposing and when it rained, the water was washing bits of bodily oh. fluid and disease down into their water supply. Mm, and nice. it, it didn't help that in the 1900s there was an outbreak of bubonic plague, typhoid fever and leprosy. Oh. And in 1934 and 46 there were more deadly outbreaks. So, yeah, it's amazing that anyone survived. Uh-huh. <laughs> oh, dear. So, yes, so in the early 1900s to 1913, it it started to change at that point in time because it became a training hospital and trainees, when they left the hospital, had private hospitals they could go to and because of the training they received from the Nightingale system, there was only really one nurse that died considering all the nurses that they had trained to look after these patients. 
despite all the long hours and the arduous nature of the work and the type of work that they had and the constant exposure to contagious diseases, these nurses really knew how to look after themselves and to keep themselves healthy. Yeah, that didn't happen up at Q Station. We ended up with uh, a few dying up there. So let me just tell you of their day. They, it commenced at 6am with a quick cup of tea. They sponged five patients in an hour between 6 and 7. They went for breakfast at 7 and work included the scrubbing of the bath brick of all bedside lockers, which were wooden, the huge wooden tables in the centre of the ward, the large wooden dresses and the side tables. There were no set working hours. One kept working till the work was done and it was common for a nurse to work 12 hours a day for weeks on end if the wards were busy. Wow. Oh, no. How awful. Time off was allowed at a rate of one day a week, taken as four consecutive days at the end of each month. Ex-trainees of those days recall that after three months' night duty continuously without time off, they were allowed four days' leave. The first days of this leave were invariably spent in sleeping off their exhaustion. (laughs) On nights off, the nurses had to be in their quarters by 10 p.m., except for one late pass per month when they were allowed to stay out until midnight. Ooh, wild times. Mm. When returning to the quarters at night down the lone dark avenue of sombre pines from the gate lodge, they found it reassuring to cling rather firmly to the arm of their escort. On such an occasion, the pine avenue was regarded as quite an asset. Oh, I see. Right. Night duty for the probationer nurse was always a trial as she was obliged to cook the midnight meal for the night sister and senior nurse and to answer the phone, which at the coast was in the telegraphic room across the darkened road from the coast wards. The senior nurses and sisters of those times were real Trojans, very strict disciplinarians who tolerated no familiarity between uh, whatsoever from more junior nurses but who were kindly people and wonderful teachers. So in 1910, there were 500 cases of diphtheria treated at the hospital. Two years later, there were 1,300. So to cope with these large numbers, temporary additions to the diphtheria ward contained 30 cots and they were made with calico walls and galvanised iron roof. So it was... It was hardly anything that could be looked at as a proper hospital. They mm. were just putting stuff up as as quickly as coping. they possibly could. Yep, coping. In 1912, there was actually electricity and I believe that the first electrical lights were used in the museum build, building where we go when mm. we do our twilight tour. Mm-hmm. Mm. 1912 sleeping galleries were erected in the coast area for the nursing of tuberculosis sufferers. These were veranda-like structures about 15 feet deep with a wall and windows on the western side and open to the east. Again, just to clear the lungs with fresh air. So rugged was life in the coast area on occasions that during one particularly bad squall, a nurse was blown off a ward veranda by the wind and sprained her ankle. I remember the nurses, when they were telling this story, they said if somebody farted down the shore, they could smell what they had for dinner. (laughs) 
So during these squalls, the thunder of the waves on rocky cliffs a few yards away could not only be heard but also felt beneath the feet as a vibration, not unlike that of an express train approaching. As a result of all this salt spray, tin and metal were corroded rapidly. And so really we're only into the early 1900s, but I'm not going to go any further because we've got to tell ghost stories. Oh, we do. But even even the history of this place is just so amazing. And it, it, it also had some famous moments too where they were working on a treatment for syphilis. Mm-hmm. And in 1910, and they had great success with a compound containing arsenic. Mm-hmm. So they're going to poison all those buggers that have had their wandering willies out, mm-hmm. as we like to call them. What year was that? That was in 1910. 1910. And didn't we also have the heart surgeon who developed like the pacemaker from there as well? Yes. And I think they had a children's ward. It became a children's hospital at some stage or other because I remember my friend telling me this horrible story. Now, the reason why I'm going to tell it is because I I want people to understand how these locations become haunted. After years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if we've learned anything, it's that there's always a catch. So when I heard that Mint Mobile wireless plans are just $15 a month, when you purchase a three-month plan, I thought, what's the catch? But after talking to them, it all made sense. There isn't a catch. Mint Mobile's secret sauce is that they sell wireless service online. They cut out the cost of retail stores, passing those sweet, sweet savings directly to you, my darklings. It has been such a good change for me. I've saved so much money in switching over to Mint Mobile with all of my family and so many people bleeding me dry. I was so happy to find some relief, and Mint Mobile has been that relief valve. Mint Mobile is here to rescue you with premium wireless plans for just 15 bucks a month. So say bye-bye to overpriced wireless plans, jaw-dropping monthly bills, and unexpected overages, and say hello to relief. Thank you, Mint Mobile, to get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month. Go to mintmobile.com slash p60. That's mintmobile.com slash p60. Cut your wireless bills to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash p60. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. There are traumatic events that happen that that seep into the walls building the bricks of the location. And remember, this is from a time gone past. So she was telling me it would have been in the 60s, I think the 70s, very early 70s, her son had to have a heart operation and she was down there with him while he had the operation and she saw these parents walking out grieving, so sad and walking away. And she said to a nurse, oh, have they just lost someone? And she said, yeah, she, the lady had a baby and it was so deformed that we've told her to leave the hospital and pretend you've never had it. <gasps> oh, and, wow. and my friend said, well, where's the baby? She said, oh, we'll just leave it in a cot to die. Mm-hmm. So she went and found that baby mm-hmm. and she wrapped it in a swaddling and she cuddled it and talked to it and she said its name was John. Mm -hmm. She gave it a name 
and she held that baby till it died so that it was in someone's arms. Now, oh, wow. it's just mind-blowing. and I, like it, it, You would not do that now. You mm-hmm. just would not do that. So just remember, guys, before everyone gets upset, it, it was how they thought was the best way to handle things in a location like that. Mm-hmm. But there is a lot of death at the hospital, but there was also a lot of joy, a lot of friendships, and some characters. Yes. Now, the one that is really well known as one of the, the ghosts of the Prince Henry Hospital is the ghost of Gracie. Yes. Now, Lynette, our lovely Lynette that we mentioned before, said that she actually knows somebody who knew Gracie. So a lot of the nurses do recall tales of this, this sister and this friend of hers started training in 1948 and she started in Sister Gracie Andrews' ward. Now, they, she got a little bit of history because we've looked and there's no mention of this particular character, but there's a lot of legend surrounding her. Mm-hmm. So it was really good to know somebody who had actually had an experience. So they said they knew she came from Queensland. They never knew where she lived, how she trained, how old she was, but we do know she worked in the polio epidemics award. She was very devoted nurse to her patients with poliomyelitis. She was still there in 1952 when her friend finished the training because this particular friend actually went back to say goodbye to her. But she had some eccentricities, mm-hmm. shall we say. Mm-hmm. She she was known for having to wash her hands compulsively if anyone came near her or touched her or bumped her or if she thought something had been touched by other hands, she had to go wash it. Mm-hmm. So we think she might have had a little bit of a germ phobia, but the reports were that she died in a B block by falling down a disused lift well. But. (laughs) But. (laughs) I I think if you knew Gracie and you knew the type of person that she was, she would never allow herself to fall down a lift well unless she was pushed. But do you know what that story reminds me of? I think it's Waverley Hill Sanatorium where a a nurse fell down a lift well and died. Oh, (gasps) yeah. See where I'm coming from? Uh I don't know about that. But there were patients reported being tended by a mysterious nurse with an old-fashioned white veil. She tops up glasses of water, adjusts blankets on cold nights and has placed bedpans under patients and removed them after use. Although the patients don't know she is a ghost, nurses do and are terrified of her. Even though Gracie isn't considered an evil presence, she projects an aura of authority which nurses instinctively respond to with subordinate fear. Mm -hmm. So she was very bossy, Mm -hmm. but most nurses are. It's interesting how these stories and nurse stories seem to migrate from hospital to hospital Mm -hmm. because I tell a ghost story from Newcastle Hospital where there is a ghost nurse that comes and brings bedpans and removes bedpans. At Newcastle Hospital. At Newcastle Hospital. Yeah, but I suppose if you think about it, if that was some sort of residual haunting, then that would have been something they would have done. But for it to be a physical Mm -hmm. 
Yes. Thing. So this nurse comes flesh and bone. Yeah. Same Physically. thing. Same thing. They see her and they go, she's got this weird outfit on. I haven't seen that sort of nurse's uniform for years. But, they, of course, you don't ask any questions. You just do your job and they take it away and that's that's it. Yep. Um, look, there's some more reports here. I love this story. One occasion two nurses were working the night shift and left milk boiling on a stove. They stepped into a corridor for a moment to check everything was all right and they returned to the tea room to find the stove turned off, the pot, which seconds before had been boiling milk, emptied and in the sink, rinsed and put away, dripping wet, along with cups, sugar and other foodstuffs. No other members of staff were on that floor. No one could have entered the room without being seen because they were in the corridor where the door was, let alone be able to clean up in such a brief period of time. Wow, what a great story. Oh, I wish you could come to my house and do a bit of work. <laughs> Seriously. Then we have another one where they talk about Gracie's ghost. They're talking about the clocks in the areas which she's seen and supposed to hang out. They stop working. Their hands stop at two o'clock. Must be AM. There's also a story of an Aboriginal boy which mysteriously, oh sorry, mischievously haunts the stairs of B block, tripping nurses and others who use them. So you can't use the lift, you can't use the stairs. Jeez. Mm-hmm. We need to mention that B block is now. Private accommodation? Yes, they've actually converted a lot of the buildings of Prince Henry Hospital into... Apartments. Apartments, which people have bought. There's somebody living in the morgue. Mm-hmm. I wonder if they told them it was the morgue where they bought it. I know, but I'd love to go and interview them. <laughs> Find out what's happening. There is another ghost that is reported. Oh, okay. It's a male. Mm-hmm. And he is unidentified, but he's described as a sinister presence. Mm-hmm. And his apparition has never been seen, but his shadow has. Oh. So you would see the shadow moving along the ward, across the beds in the ward, accompanied by heavy footsteps, and it drifts across the walls. Whoa. Sounds like the Grim Reaper oh, coming, coming to to take his victims, doesn't it? Oh, it does. It does. There's also other reports of intravenous drips and medical equipment mysteriously turned off in the hospital. The attending nurses believe that the spectre is responsible. I think they're talking about this male one. Patient buzzers used to summon nurses are often pressed late at night in locked unoccupied wards. Mm. Some nurses refuse to work at night. Those who do always do the rounds in pairs. The hospital has its own cemetery, abandoned and overgrown, and it contains well over a thousand people. Many patients who died in the hospital in the early days were buried there. Now there are reports of Nurses dying in swimming accidents, boating accidents nearby in a lagoon. Some nurses died during the epidemics, although you said it was only one. Mm. While tending devotedly to the sick and dying. Makes a better story if there's more than one, doesn't mm-hmm. it? Yep. But getting back to Gracie, Gracie Andrews, the ghost. Now, we did some spirit box work and we used the Estes method where 
We uh, had people listening to the chatter of the spirit box and just calling out what they heard and we asked questions so we couldn't front load them with the idea of what the answer may be. And I did ask and I do ask regularly but this one time I got an answer. I said, do you know Sister Gracie? And the answer was yes. And I said, what was she like? And somebody called out, she was crazy. <laughs> Poor Sister Gracie. Oh, I think she might have had some mental health issues. So Bless her. from the afterlife, someone said she was crazy. Yep. Oh, nice. Yep. Okay. All right. But let's get back to the whole theory that she died by falling down a disused lift well, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. That is not true. That did not happen because they know that she moved over to Taramara. When the polio epidemic died down mm-hmm. and the ward was shut down, they moved it over to Taramara and Gracie Andrews followed them over there living mm-hmm. and continued her work as a nurse specialising in poliomyelitis. And they have proof that she was registered from 1956 to 1958 in the electoral rolls as a resident living in Taramara. So, Gracie is a real person. Mm -hmm. Whether she still haunts there or not, I don't know. But there is one other story that we haven't mentioned Mm -hmm. before we tie off on Gracie. We met through our work that we've done at Prince Henry Hospital, two amazing characters. First one, her name is Billy. And she was a matron at the Prince Henry Hospital. Mm -hmm. And she doesn't believe in all this stuff and nonsense. By the sounds of it, she was quite the iron fist. And her daughter, Megan, Mm -hmm. moved into the same field of nursing. Mm -hmm. Now, Megan also does not believe in all this stuff, but she's had a few experiences over the years that she couldn't explain. And one of them was at Prince Henry Hospital. (laughs) You know what's coming. <laughs> We've lost Renata. I'm just trying to work out how I'm going to tell this story. I remember it. Without, getting, <laughs> without having people vomit and, or turn off. All right, all right, take a breath, Renata. Okay. Let me talk. Okay, all right, here we everyone, go. sit back. So sit back and enjoy. This was an, a night shift, if I remember correctly. And Megan, I'm sorry if you're listening to this and I get it slightly wrong. And she was in charge of the drug cabinet. So she had the keys for it. And if anyone needed specific medication, they had to come to her and get, or not get the keys. She would go and get the medication for them and release the medication for use. So this particular night, she had been in there and she'd got some medication out, closed it, locked it back up, put the keys in her pocket and then gone and administered the, the, the drugs to the person involved. Somebody else came up and said, oh, we need some more stuff for someone. And they're going, okay, let's go and get it. She's gone back to the cupboard, opened it, and on the shelf was a perfectly formed human poo. <laughs> I've heard this story six times now. (laughs) I've heard it more than that. Um, So she can't work out how this poo 
got firstly on a shelf height that was about five feet off the ground. So they would have had to be standing on a chair and hanging their butt <laughs> over there somehow or other because she said it looked like where it had dropped. It hadn't been moved there because there'd be no finger marks from where it had been picked up and moved. Yeah, remember, yeah. remember it was still steaming. It was That's still what? steaming. It was still warm. Mmm, toasty. I wonder if she could work out what they had for dinner. She might have been able to track it down by the whiff. Bit of curry maybe. I don't know. I think she's going to spit her drink at me. Mm. Uh so she had the keys. How did it get in there? How did it get five feet off the ground? Mmm. I don't how, think that was Gracie. <laughs> how how would it have been like that the cabinets aren't really the big. little shelves. They're little shelves. Yeah. How do you position it into the cabinet? You'd have to be very good at projecting your poop onto the shelf. <laughs> I don't know any other way that's, to do that's it. That's an astounding story. Yeah. So that that was her unexplained um, thing. Phenomena. Phenomena. <laughs> do, 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 do. Explain that, parapsychologist. Go right ahead. <laughs> oh, oh, there was one thing I remember. One of the artifacts within the hospital. It. Oh, I've picked it up, and I've said to Lynette, who was still there at that stage, it. It had three arms extending from it that had little feet on it the end and it was like a corkscrew you know when you you screw it the corkscrew in and the 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 legs widen out well she picked it up she started demonstrating and explained what it was it was a torture device for having children (laughs) she said it was from the 1800s it it would stretch you it was to dilate the cervix Mm -hmm. and what they they'd I've got a video of this somewhere. You'd stick it up the clacker and when the baby's head was starting to come down and you'd, you'd position these little feet so that it would, then you wind it up like your corkscrew and the legs would spread out so the baby's head could go, there you go. But it was like something out of a medieval torture. Oh, it was, <laughs> I have seen it. It's horrible. Oh, it's it's all metal. It is. It is. It's awful. No woman would want that up there while she was giving birth, I tell you. Anyway, that that was just a little side story <laughs> there. <laughs> we did have another spirit box session there, which went on for about 20 minutes. So it was quite astounding. Now, this is before your time, Renata. I was working with another investigator. And he was sort of like a bloke's bloke. He was asking questions like, yeah, how you going, mate? And they started to get this response. And I think his name was Trevor or something like that, and the the, the ghost that came through. And we were getting answers like, how, how did you die? Car accident. Well, what sort of car did you drive? Was it Holden or a Ford or what was it? Holden. You don't, just forgive them. And how old were you, mate? Oh, 19. And, you know, what did you use the car for? Picking up chicks. <laughs> yeah, we had this huge conversation. Of course, at the time, because we had a group of 20 people there, we, we didn't even stop to think to record. We were mm-hmm. just wrapped in the moment mm-hmm. of what was happening. Mm-hmm. So we, we've had some great conversations with spirits through the spirit box. Mm-hmm. You've also had some great connections because we do a bit of the old-fashioned Victorian sales communication mm-hmm. as part of that. And you would have a lot of family members come through and provide healing moments to answer questions or bring some laughter. Mm -hmm. So some people come in because, of course, they are nurses who worked in the hospital. Some people come in because their relatives may have passed over at the hospital. Some of them just come in for curiosity. But 
it always seems that the right people land at the tables at the right time and always connections come through. Always there is a connection. Always there is a story. Always there is some sort of healing. At every single twilight tour that we do, we've never had a tour where people have not walked away and at least someone is crying because they have had a piece of the puzzle unveiled for them. Yeah, so it's healing tears, not... Healing tears, absolutely healing tears. And I guess that's what makes this particular hospital so awesome to do these tours Mm. at because it seems that the spirits that are there are still providing this hand that, healing energy. Yeah, allows them to still continue to heal. And Quarantine Station Manly is the same. It mm. is still healing people. Every still time I drive people. onto site, I just, ah, big yeah. sigh, big breath, and I, I just love the place. So is Prince Henry Hospital haunted? Now, we haven't done a proper lockdown investigation no, yet. We They're haven't. promising that that's going to happen soon. Yeah, we haven't. Um, I, as for Gracie, I think she is a legend. Mm-hmm. I think she was a character of the hospital that was odd and sticks in people's minds. So if anything goes wrong, it's so easy to go. That was Gracie's ghost that did that. Mm-hmm. That wasn't us. Mm-hmm. And it's so easy to pass the buck. I mean, she could walk the halls. I haven't had anything definitive yet to say that she does or does not. Mm-hmm. But I've had a little bit of a conversation to say, you know, they know who she is and that she's mad, mm-hmm. crazy. Mm-hmm. But it's one of those places that I feel it could have residual energies there. Mm-hmm. It could have a caretaker guardian spirit that is looking after the place. It's certainly an awesome place. And really, you can go visit it. It's the Prince Henry Hospital Nurses Museum in Little Bay for a small donation, which will help keep that museum open and running. You can go and have a walk through and look at the history and the artifacts and everything that's there and get a sense of it for yourself. Mm-hmm. And while you're there, take a walk down to the original cemetery mm. and see what is left. There may not be much left, but it may well be a place where you actually do pick up on some of the energy that still remains. Yeah. So is it haunted? Well, watch this space because we're going to do a lockdown investigation there and find out. Mm-hmm. I'll be there. Oh, will you? Yeah. I'll, ha- I'll think about inviting you. <laughs> Thank you, everyone, for joining us for this week's episode of True Hauntings. I hope you've enjoyed our tale from the shores of Australia and make sure that you have subscribed to our podcast. And if you have the opportunity to leave us a fantastic review, we'd absolutely love that. Bye for now. Thank you for listening to this episode of True Hauntings. If you like the show, give us a five-star rating and leave a review. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. For more on Anne and Renata, follow at Anne and Renata on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube. Or visit their website, www.annandrenata.com. <laughs>